Well, good morning. My name is Carlos, and a good morning to our Quakertown campus. Um, really excited for you guys. Hope that you treat Charles well as he's visiting you up there. So, as Jeff was saying earlier, we are in our second week in a series we're calling Vital Signs. And if you were here last week and Charles was talking, you would have heard that when we go to a doctor or to an emergency room or to a hospital, whatever, the first thing, what do they do? The first thing they do is they check your vital signs. And what happens when they're checking your vital signs is not just um, stuff that they do to you, but they're also looking at paperwork. And what they're doing is they're looking back at your past. They're examining your history. And then they take an assessment of your present. And by taking an assessment of your present and looking back at your past, at your history, what they're hoping to do is to create a destination for your future. And what we're hoping in this series is that that destination is not just simply one of accomplishments or tasks, but rather that destination is transformational. That that destination causes us to become a clearer image of Jesus. And so today we're going to talk about something that is talked about often in churches, and sometimes when we hear it, we don't really grasp the weight of it because we've heard it so often. We're going to talk about loving others. And in fact, we're going to talk about a story that is also heard often. At least the title is well known. The title is The Good Samaritan. And so if you've heard this already and, and, and you kind of have learned about this, don't check out. Because I think there's something in it that we really need to hear today. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Luke. If you don't have a Bible, the verses are going to be up on the screens up front. You can also take out your phone or your tablet and go to the Bible app or the Bible Gateway app. And here in the auditorium, you can also take the Bible out of the seat rack in front of you. If you're at our Quakertown campus, uh, in the back of the room, there are actually some Bibles that you can go and you can take there. But if you don't own a Bible, we want you to keep that. Take it home. It's free. It's our gift to you. And the reason being is that we believe that reading the Bible has the potential to impact your life. And so we want you to have a Bible. So if you don't have one, you can take one of the ones in your room or you can go out and talk to the people at the Info Hub and ask them for a Bible. And then just don't take it home and, and leave it there and just use it when you come here to Calvary Church. Read it at home. And if you have questions and you're like, I'm not really sure about this, call us up. Myself or one of the pastors would be more than happy to talk to you. But we're going to be reading from the book of Luke, and we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. And it says this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. 
a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came and where the man, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you, ha- you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So let's set this up a little bit. There's this guy, and he's an expert in the law. He's very religious. He knows what the Bible says or what the Jewish canon, what we know as the Old Testament. He knows what's all in there. He knows about the different texts from different rabbis, the rabbinical texts. He knows the law inside and out. He is an expert. And he stands up, and he decides that he's going to test Jesus. Now, we don't know why he wanted to test Jesus. We don't know what was his motive. We don't know if there was ill motive. We don't know if he was trying to trap him. We see that in some other passages where religious leaders try to trap Jesus and test him. We don't know if that was the case here. We just know that he was trying to test Jesus. And so he says to Jesus, what must we do to gain eternal life? But Jesus flips it. And he says, you're an expert. How do you read the law? And so the man gives an answer. And the answer that the man gives is actually correct. Kind of. You see, he's saying the right words, but the truth of the words he's saying isn't fully grasped. You see, he's saying this, and Jesus affirms that he, what he said was correct, but Jesus isn't giving him a list to, com- to complete. He's not saying, these are the tasks you must complete. No, in Jesus saying, yes, this is so, what Jesus is doing is affirming the calling of God on his people, the calling of God on all people, the calling of a desire for people to love him, for us to love him. And in that effort to love him, that overflows and we love others. And so... This man doesn't fully get it, and Jesus says, you're correct. But that doesn't satisfy him, so he decides to try to justify himself. And in trying to justify himself, he actually condemns himself. And the reason that happens is because of this. In the man's effort to justify himself, he asks a question. And when he asks a question, he reveals his heart. And what we learn is that this man has a heart that is ready to discriminate. You see, by asking this question, who is my neighbor, he is implying that there are two types of people. He is implying that there are people who are neighbors and that there are people who are not. And by implying this, he makes another implication. By implying that there are two types of people, they are neighbors or not neighbors, he's also implying that there are people who are worthy to be loved and people who are not worthy to be loved. In his question, he is revealing a heart that is willing to discriminate. 
before we judge him, before we kind of like criticize him or anything, we need to understand his culture. Again, he's an expert of the law. He knows the law inside and out. He knows not just the Old Testament. He knows the different texts of the rabbis. He knows different rabbinical texts. And, and he, here's the thing. We actually have some of those texts. We don't um, just have the Old Testament, but we have other texts that are not part of the Bible. They're not what we would consider God's word. They're not things that we have uh, affirmed as scripture. Um, but we have these texts, and we can learn about the culture of this man by reading these texts and reading what it was that was taught during that time. So there's a book called Sirach. And in the book of Sirach, which again, it's not part of our Bible, it's not what we would consider God's word, but in the book of Sirach, it says something very interesting. In Sirach chapter 12, it says this, when you do a good deed, make sure you know who is benefiting from it, then what you do will not be wasted. You will be repaid for any kindness you show to a devout person. If he doesn't repay you, the most high will. No good ever comes to a person who gives comfort to the wicked. It's not a righteous act. Give to religious people, but don't help sinners. Do good to humble people, but don't give anything to those who are not devout. Don't give them food or they will use your kindness against you. Every good thing you do for such people will bring you twice as much trouble in return. That sounds crazy, right? It sounds ludicrous. And yet this is the beat and rhythm of the heartbeat of this expert of the law. He is simply doing what he was taught. He is simply being the Jew that he thinks he should be. But before we judge that, before we judge this, this passage, and before we start criticizing it and, and saying, oh, how in the world, that sounds so ludicrous, that just, how could you actually think that way? I need to ask myself a question, that even though I hear those words, and I'm like, that's ridiculous. That's, that's absolutely ludicrous. Do my actions actually match up to my feelings because if i was honest okay here's the deal i love people that love me just reality i love people that i have a relationship with that care about me and i love people who and i will do good things for people that i sometimes feel will do good things for me I know the truth of what I'm supposed to do. I know that this is ludicrous, but if I were to really examine my actions, do they really match up with what I believe is true? Does what is in here actually get down to what is here? Because far too often, the answer is no. I choose to love people who are like me. And that is the beat of the heartbeat of the culture of this expert of the law, and it's the beat of the heartbeat of the culture we live in. We live in a world that assigns value to certain types of people, and we live and we kind of differentiate between who is worthy and who is not. I mean, we don't have to look far, right? We really don't. You kind of assign value and worth to people, and you choose who you will love based on if they voted for Clinton or Trump, right? It's just reality, right? I mean, there are two different types of people. I mean, there are cowboy fans, and then there's everybody else. 
we do that, we kind of differentiate between people and assign worth. We're no different than them. We're no different than this expert of the law. And you see, in his effort to justify himself, he actually exposes to how much in the dark he actually is. And so Jesus tells a story. And in telling this story, Jesus illuminates the truth. The story that Jesus tells will illuminate the truth hidden in the darkness. Jesus is asked a question. The question is, who is my neighbor? That's not what Jesus answers. The answer that Jesus gives does not explicitly say, who is my neighbor? The answer Jesus gives actually gives an answer to a different question. Instead of answering, who is my neighbor, Jesus answers, how to be, how should I be neighborly? Instead of answering, who should I be a neighbor to, he answers, how you should be a neighbor. And in this response, there's a big difference, and it is this difference, it is this difference that illuminates the heart of the matter. Because let's take a look at the hero of the story. Who's the hero of the story? If I were to ask you, who's the hero? Your answer would be, the, you guys are great. You actually answered, the good Samaritan. Right, the Samaritan, that's the hero. The Samaritan is supposed to be the villain. For the Jews, the Samaritan was supposed to be the villain. So to hear that he's the hero, that doesn't make any sense. The good Samaritan, those don't go together. And I was trying to kind of figure out, you know, an illustration of what it would look like when you have someone who's supposed to be the villain, but they're actually the hero, and the story is just something that you kind of have to adjust to. And so I came with this illustration. I kept coming back to this illustration in my head, and I was like, I really don't want to say this illustration. And the reason I don't want to say this illustration is because if I use this illustration, then I have to admit that I like going to the theater. <laughs> and if I admit that I like going to the theater, then I have to admit that I like musicals. And if I admit that I like musicals, then Jeff, Jay, and Charles will make fun of me. <laughs> because they're uncultured. <laughs> but one of the musicals that my wife and I really like is Wicked. Okay? The hero in Wicked is the Wicked Witch of the Wizard of Oz. The one whom we feared, the one whom we rooted against, is now the hero, the one we need to root for. And it makes no sense. If, if you walk into this, this show and you don't know the story of Wicked, which I didn't really know the story of Wicked when I walked in, it takes a little bit of adjustment. You're used to looking at that green face and thinking, that's bad. Now you look at the green face and you're like, I guess that's good. It's an adjustment. And it's the same kind of adjustment those, this expert of the law and the people listening to the story had to do. To hear that the Samaritan was the hero, there was an adjustment there. This, wait, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. The hero should have been the priest, not the Samaritan. And there's an adjustment. And as Jesus is doing this adjustment, as he's doing this, we have to understand that this isn't something trivial. The way the Jews felt about the Samaritans isn't something 
trivial like how we feel about Dallas Cowboy fans. That, that, that's not like that. No, this was a bitter hatred. This was a bitter, bitter hatred. Now then again, you guys are Eagles fans. So your hatred runs deep, but it's not like that. There's history here. And in fact, there's a family rift that is present. You see, the kingdom of Israel, united, was ruled by three kings. First Saul, then David, then Solomon. After that, it splits. There's the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. And they go through all these ups and downs, go through exile, and, and, and actually just the scattering for the kingdom of Israel. But the kingdom of Judah is where the Jews came from. And that, that group is actually where, where the, Jesus, the people Jesus were talking to were coming from. But this scattered group of the kingdom of Israel kind of interbreeds with different other people groups and different people groups. And from that comes the Samaritans. But it traces back to this kingdom of Israel. And there was family strife. And you'd be like, okay, well, there was a split family. Family split, you know, no big deal. No, no. No, there was battles, there was real hurt, there was real pain. If we look at 2 Chronicles, we get one example, just one example of this. In 2 Chronicles, it talks about how Israel killed 120,000 soldiers from Judah. This is one example. This is one battle, 120,000 soldiers from Judah, and then took captive 200,000 wives, sons, and daughters from Judah. Okay, we read those numbers and we just don't kind of grasp that, okay? That's basically like a hundred times the amount of people in this building. So all of those children that you have in the kid zone, they're taken captive. All of your wives that are around you, they're taken captive. Your husbands, they're dead. Your sons, they're dead. This is real. There is very real hurt, very real bitterness, very real scars that have been layered year after year after year. There is no love lost for a Samaritan by a Jew. And yet Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero. He makes the Samaritan the hero. And he says to this expert of the law, he says, who was the neighbor? And even then, this expert of the law cannot fully grasp it. He cannot let go of this heart that wants to discriminate. Even though the truth has been illuminated, he can't let go of this heart that wants to discriminate. What does he answer? What does he say? The one who showed mercy. When I ask you, who is the neighbor in the story, your answer is the Samaritan. He cannot bring himself to say the Samaritan. He can only say the one who showed mercy. Because it goes against every grain of his being. And so Jesus says, now go and do likewise. Be like the Samaritan. That is a slap in the face. This was radical. This was crazy. 
And it's even more crazy when we see how Jesus introduces the Samaritan at the beginning of the story. He introduces it, he sets this setting that, that there is this beat-up man who has been robbed and he's just lying on the side of the road and the Samaritan enters the story. And he doesn't just go, the Samaritan enters the story and goes and he dresses the wounds of this man with wine and oil. He, do, he doesn't do that. He does something first. He says that the Samaritan saw someone in need and he had pity. The Samaritan saw someone in need and he had compassion. Why did the Samaritan do what he did? Because he had compassion. Because of love. That was it. There was no reward in his actions. There, there was no good that would come from helping this man. This was not a family or a friend or even one of the people in his own group. This was an enemy. He gains nothing from helping this man. He does it out of compassion. Do you remember what we read in the book of Sirach? Those don't match. Those motivations don't match. And it's the Samaritan who has the heart of compassion. And so Jesus flips the question and illuminates the real issue. It isn't about who you should love. It's about how you should love. And if you can grasp how you should love, then you will realize that the who you should love is everyone. It's not about the who you should love but how you should love. But when you grasp how you should love, you realize who you should love is everyone. And this is intense. This is really intense. Because like I said, I can kind of be okay and I can agree with loving my neighbor. I can do that. Because I already admitted to you, when I do that, what comes to mind are people who I already have a relationship with. What comes to mind are people who care about me. What comes to mind are people who will do good for me. I can come to grips with that. There's benefit for me. I can actually come to grips. It can be palatable for me to say, love everyone. I can do that too. It's kind of palatable. You know why? Because there's no names to that everyone. There's not even really any faces. I can make the faces that I choose. So when I decide to love everyone, I am drawn to certain someones of that everyone. So we can't just stop with Jesus saying to love everyone. We can't just stop and say that Jesus is saying that your neighbor is everyone. Because this story is too rich for that. It's too full for that. It's more than that. Because if Jesus is saying to love your neighbor, and then he says that your neighbor is everyone, well, then that means that your enemy is your neighbor. That means that your enemy is your neighbor. If I am to love my neighbor, and my neighbor is everyone, well, then only logic will allow me to understand 
that that means that my enemy is my neighbor. And this is turning everything upside down. The one who caused you heartache, the one who betrayed you, the one whom you trusted but was actually lying, the one who damaged you, the one who said those lies about you, the one who stole what you have, that enemy, that enemy is your neighbor, and you are to love him. And when I hear that, it makes me uncomfortable. When I hear that, it makes me uncomfortable because immediately certain people come to mind and the question that I ask is, how? How? My dad is one of seven. He has five sisters and one brother. And uh, being Spanish, we don't call our aunts aunts. Uh, you call them tia, okay? But I'm Puerto Rican, so we don't call them tia. We call them a nickname. We call them titi. So one of my dad's sisters, I call titi patsy. And titi patsy is uh, four foot ten on a good day. <laughs> and I don't talk to her much. I don't really call her on the phone. Uh, I, I love her, and, and she... When she lived in New York growing up, when I was in New York, she was a great influence on my life, and, and I, I love all of my aunts. But they moved to Minnesota, so I don't see them much. Uh, actually, like a year and a half ago was the last time I saw her when she came and visited my dad. But the other day, I was walking through um, the, by the area, by the next steps and the hub, and I get a phone call. And, and it's uh, Titi Patsy. And so I answer, I'm going, well, hello? And she goes, Carlos? I'm like, yes. This is Patricia. Patricia, but I've learned that even though my aunt is short, I don't argue with her <laughs> because she's tough. So I said, okay. And so she starts to talk to me, and we talk for an hour and a half. And she just starts unloading all of this stuff, all of this junk in her life that was going on, and all of this heartache, and she just starts just dumping it all, and I'm listening, and I'm going back and forth, and we're talking, and I'm counseling her, and... and and I've never had a conversation like this with her before, and we just continue on, and it's like it's getting like an hour, and like I said, it was an hour and a half we talked, and about halfway through that, I think to myself, does she know who she's talking to? Because my dad's name is Carlos. So we talked for an hour and a half, and like I said, she just unloads, and there's a lot that we did, and I, and I talked, and then we prayed at the end, and at the end I said, you do know you're talking to your nephew, right? Oh, no! <laughs> and she just starts laughing and laughing and laughing. And she's like, it was like I was talking to your father. It was like talking to your dad. Now, I didn't try to imitate my dad. I did not try to make my voice sound like my dad. But the DNA of my dad flows through the blood of my veins. And his fingerprints are all over my life. And he's impacted me in so many ways that without trying, there are times that I emulate him. I emulate him. Merriam-Webster defines emulate as this. 
to equal or approach equality with. It's not simply an imitation, it is to equal. For my aunt, for Titi Patsy, my conversation with her was equal to a conversation with my father. In fact, she never called him. It was good enough that she talked to me. For her, the conversation with me was equal to a conversation with my dad. When it comes to loving our neighbor, our love should equal the love of Jesus. Our love should equal the love of Jesus to the point that those we show love to should say, it's like I was with Jesus. And again, I say, how? Because you see, Jesus was urging this expert of the law to love in a way that he was already loving. Jesus is saying, love your neighbors. Your neighbor includes your enemy. Your enemy is your, labor, is your, is your neighbor. Love your enemy. Jesus was already doing that. In fact, he loved his enemies so much he was willing to die for his enemies. You see, when we sinned, we rebelled against God. When we sinned in that act of treason, in that act of rebellion, we declared war on God. And in so doing, we declared ourselves enemies with God. And there are very real consequences to that. But what was God's response? For God so loved the world. God's response was to love. To love his enemies. So much so that he sent his son. And the son's love for his father overflowed so much that he loved his enemies enough to die for them. That's how we are supposed to love. That is how we are supposed to love our neighbor. That is how we are supposed to love our, our en en enemies. But how can we do that? How are we supposed to do that? Because loving my enemy who is my neighbor is hard. When I've been hurt, it's difficult. And actually, I'm going to tell you something right now. It's impossible. You can't. You can't will yourself to love your enemy. You can't rely on your skill sets or your discipline or your efforts to love your enemy. It's impossible if you were to do it alone. It is only through the work of the Holy Spirit in you that you can hope to accomplish this. And just like the DNA of my dad flows through my veins, the Holy Spirit, who is not some force or some energy source, but rather a person who is God himself, who is in us and with us, it is only through the work of the Holy Spirit that we are able to love in this way. If you look at Galatians, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work, what is the first fruit? The fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. It is the love of the Holy Spirit that we are to pass on to our neighbors. It is the love of the Holy Spirit that we are to pass on to our enemies. You can't do it on your own efforts, so stop trying. Press into the Holy Spirit and ask 
for his love for you to pass on to that enemy, to that neighbor. It's scary, I know. That's what stops me. Fear stops me. It's scary to think of loving someone who's hurt me. Why? Because you risk being hurt again. It's scary. In a moment, the band's going to come out and they're going to sing another song. But I want to acknowledge that maybe you're like me. The sound of of me telling you to love your enemy is scary. It is. It fills me with fear. But here's the deal. While I am supposed to participate in this battle, it's not my battle to win. Jesus already won it. I just have to line up on the right side. And so what do we do next then? If we're relying on the Holy Spirit, what do we do next? Well, I think for some of us, we need to figure out and identify who it is that the Holy Spirit is telling us to love. What enemy in our heart is actually our neighbor that we are meant to love? Because if you're like me, it's easy to kind of push that to the side and ignore that and pretend like it's not there. So I have a couple questions for you. Here they are. The first question is this. Who changes my mood to the negative when I hear their name? Who changes my mood to the negative when I hear their name? Question number two. Who do I change the direction I am walking in when I see them in my path? Who do I change the direction I'm walking in when I see them in my path? Number three, who do I go out of my way to speak negatively about to others? I go out of my way to say something negative so that they know just how bad this person is. Who do I go out of my way to speak negatively about to others? Who brings anxiety to my heart when I think about seeing them? Who is it that I just cannot forgive? The answer to those questions, the answer to those questions is someone whom God wants you to love. The name that came to your mind as you were rattling those questions, the different names, those are your neighbors. And you are to love your neighbor. Now, I need to go off on a, just a real quick side note. Loving someone isn't the same as trusting someone. Okay, this is just a side note. Trust takes a lot of time. So loving someone isn't the same as trusting someone. So if you're like, I can't trust them, doesn't mean you don't have to love them. You can't claim the love of Jesus and then withhold it from someone else. But loving someone is not the same as trusting someone. And also, loving someone doesn't mean that you let them do whatever they want to you or you have to do whatever they want you to do. 
No, loving someone means that you love the way that God wants you to love them. So, then the next step is this. If we've identified who it is that is our neighbor, if we've identified who it is that God wants us to love, then we need to ask and pray that the Holy Spirit reveals to us how we are to love them. Because we love people in different ways. It doesn't mean that we love them with different values. It just means that we love them in different ways. There are different ways to love people, and there are different ways that people feel loved. And there are different ways in different situations where you are to love. So you need to pray and ask for wisdom on how you are to love. But if you are like me, right now, you're thinking to yourself, not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. No, thank you. I'll pick up a CD from last week and I'll listen to that again. And here's where I get stuck, so here's where you have to go to step number three. Once you identify who on that list, who the answer to those questions brings to your mind, and you realize that that is who you are to love, and then you pray and you realize how you are to love, then you need to remind yourself of how you were loved. It is at that point that you need to remind yourself of how Jesus loved you. Because you were his enemy. And he gave his life because he loved you. And once you remind yourself of how you were loved, then just like Jesus said at the end of this passage, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord, this is not easy. It's not easy for me. There are people in my life whom I just don't want to love. There are people in my life that have hurt me. There are people in my life that when I think of them, I don't, I don't want to love them. It's not that I want to hurt them. I, I just don't want to even acknowledge that they exist. Help me to love like you loved. Give me the wisdom to know how you want me to love. Give me the courage and the peace and the comfort to do that. Remind me of the love you've shown to me. Lord, there are a lot of people who have been hurt in this room. There are a lot of people who've been hurt in this room. Please help. Please help. It's not our battle to win because you already won it. So we ask for your help. Heal the hurts and let hearts overflow with love. Let people understand that it won't be instant. Sometimes it will take time. But let people turn 
and face the way you want them to face and to truly love their neighbors. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.